welcome to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. Uh, we're looking at, well, this is a special series, actually. We, we're speaking to Gillian Arnold today. So first of all, hello, Gillian. Hi. Nice to have you on with us. Now, you've edited a book, and we're going to speak to all the uh, people involved over the next few weeks on the podcast. Women in Tech, a practical guide to increasing gender diversity and inclusion. So before we start, let's get a bit of background from you. What, what, what's your background in IT? What's led you to this point? I'm, I'm horrified to say that I probably had nigh on 40 years in tech. Um, so I started, I failed my A-levels, um, mostly because I was far too interested in the sex pistols. And, uh, and so I started life as, a, as an IT, an operator um, for a shipping company in London and uh and and spent years doing practical things before i joined ibm as a teacher teaching ibm's customers about technology which was so much fun i loved that i loved the intellectual challenge and um yeah yeah it was just fab and then uh and then i changed roles in ibm you can do that in big companies can't you lots and lots of different roles, really exciting career with IBM. And then I left in about 2010 and uh, set up my own company, uh, which went through a few, a few changes before we settled on um, two things. We help companies recruit women in STEM, so tech and engineering mostly. And then we uh, train on unconscious bias, racism or anti-racism and uh, and inclusive leadership. So all sorts of all sorts of training that really fits with how on earth do I recruit more people of colour? How on earth do I recruit more women? And, and how am I more inclusive at work? So OK, excellent. Now, do you think your punk background has contributed to that? Because punk had a sort of quite an inclusive and political ideology, didn't it? Yeah, all of all of the punk um, rock against racism marches. Mm. I was there uh, with my orange hair and whatever else. <laughs> OK, well, thank you for that mental image. Uh, that's an interesting <laughs> background, though. Thank you. Uh, so, Gillian, uh, let's uh, talk about the book specifically. Now, you're, you're the editor, so I'm guessing that really you're the sort of main push behind getting this book published would that be fair it to a small extent in that we all kept saying we need to do this we need to do mm. this so we were all convinced we needed to do it and and so I was the main push simply because um I I got down and did it um but not because we weren't all equally committed to um making it very clear that we need to we need to make change and equally committed to producing something that's a really pragmatic and practical guide yeah. um, because we know that the big organizations have got it off pat you know the ibms and the ciscos and the microsofts they they kind of get it and they know that they need to make change even they struggle to maintain it and uh, and there are so many other companies who can work on this. So we wanted it to be a practical guide. Why do you think it's so difficult even for larger organisations to change the balance? 
If I'm honest, I think there's a huge cultural issue in tech. I don't think it's just in tech. I think it's in all mm. all other industries too. But 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 the culture can be very off-putting, and uh, and so uh, companies struggle with something that is so amorphous as culture. Because how do you change that? And and the change in culture, if you are going to do it, is really really slow really slow and so you almost don't notice that you're making a change do you think then there's actually uh, some good exemplars to be looked at in smaller organizations where they are um just more quick to react to you know these sort of changing cultural approaches it sh- i mean this should have happened years ago we uh, i know i've been speaking to you about this for years haven't i mm-hmm. but uh, there's lessons yeah. to be learned there from smaller organizations Smaller organisations can be more flexible, but they can also be in a situation where they don't think they've got a problem because they are a smaller organisation. They can see everybody. If it's really tiny as an organisation, maybe they can get away with it. But but I I think if you're looking at SMEs, we've all got we've all got issues. I, I look at my own group of people. And, and over the years, as a small team, five or six people at any one time, um, I struggle. I don't have enough men. We've got one man in our team at the moment. And so one man, five women, how does he feel? You know, would, even in the tiny organisations, I think there are issues. I mean, that makes a change for it to be that way around, though, right? Yeah, yeah. He's great, though. Yeah, yeah, he's a great addition to the team, but it is challenging. I, I've got a, an example from when I was really young. I, I, I was working in this shipping company, and they sent me off to some IT conference, and I sat in the front row of this conference, and there were probably about 200, 300 people, and I was the only female. I was the only female. So because I was the only female, they invited me to the head table at the dinner. You know, they had one of those gala dinner things in the evening. And uh, that was lovely until the stripper came on. You know, this was this was in the late 70s, early 80s. But how ridiculous. How utterly ridiculous. And so, yeah, we've moved on. But you can see that the culture would have the same kind of challenges yeah that's interesting actually it, it, when you hear stories like that it, it, it still almost takes your breath away doesn't it the stuff like that could uh, mm-hmm. even then uh, would have been yeah. sort of being okay yeah, yeah. And, and I came out of school thinking I can be anything I want to be yeah. and, and the young women come out of colleges today going well, I'm going to hit the top levels of whatever chosen profession I've got because nothing I, they've been told nothing should stop them. They are capable of anything. And then they hit the culture. Uh, that's interesting because you've given us a couple of sort of personal experiences there. Without giving away the contents of the book too much, because obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to sell the book, aren't we? Um, <laughs> t- tell me a bit about the, the, the bits you contributed, because I, I know you did individual sort of parts, didn't you? What, what, what was your sort of focus through it? Uh, so I wrote the first section on the business case for diversity. I, I've been convinced since the early 2000s that 
unless you set all of this in a business context and you give it a good business case, mm. then for many, it's just, it passes them by. They're like, well, why do I need to be so woke? Which is an interesting term in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Why do I need to be aware of the experience of others? And why do I need to be so morally correct about equality? And the answer is, well, that would be nice, but actually you need to be because it's good for business. It's good right. for organisation. So, so I wanted to make that clear. Um, and I think I wanted to make that clear for CIOs, CTOs, you know, people who have the power to make change. And then I wanted to make it clear for those who are working in diversity roles or for people working in employee resource groups where they have to build a business case so that they can get some spend so that they can say we want to we want to show how amazing our company is and for that reason we want to spend a bit of money on entering competitions to try to win competitions for our for our commitment to diversity um, mm. And you do need a bit of spend if you're in an employee resource group. But but to uh, the, the point about employee resource groups, it's generally the women who are running the women in tech group who are saying we need to make change. And just just as it would be, you know, the people of colour running the ethnicity group or the people with disabilities running mm. the disabilities group. And you know, that's great. And the commitment is huge because it's very personal to them. However, if it's always them trying to fix the problem, it doesn't work. It has to be a problem owned and shared at the highest, highest highs of the, of the business. The, the business needs to recognize that there is good reason to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you lead me quite nicely into the question I'm going to ask all, all of you folks that are involved in this book, which is telling it to, to, the, to the male listeners straight, what should, be, what should men be doing to contribute to this? Uh, you know, we, we've, been, uh, we've been running this anti-racism uh, anti course, and I, I was thinking about this question and, and so there's this thing, there's race, there's being not racist. I'm not a racist, one might say. And there's being anti-racist, which is I put in specific effort not to be racist. And I support and I become an ally to those who are a different skin tone to me. Hmm. And I think there's, absolutely the same thing for sexist non-sexist and anti-sexist and it's i put in specific effort to recognize understand be aware of and then be an ally to those who are a different gender to me yeah and, it, and it so, all... yeah and understanding yourself and others in this need for change. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm not expecting you to put a number on this, but anecdotally, how how many men do you feel have that 
attitude oh. in this particular debate. <laughs> Don't put a number on it, Sir Gillian, but you know. That's really challenging. Is it more common than not? Or, or maybe that's a fair uh, Yeah, no, it, well, I, you know, I'm thinking about it and I, I, I think I would really struggle to put anything more than 20% of men are actually actively involved. And it's okay. that, it's anti-sexist or anti, you know, uh, uh, allies. Uh, yeah, 20%. And I think I'd be being generous at that point. But I'm not sure how, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know we haven't done any specific research on that, but I suppose, you know, what I could say is, uh, you know, blokes that listen to this, four and five of you, pull your socks up. No, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, because I don't think men are intentionally uh, nasty. I don't don't think they're all going, oh, well, let's keep the women out. I don't think they're doing that, but they're not supporting. And it's that, it's that difference between I'm a sexist, I'm not a sexist, I'm anti-sexist. Okay, that's interesting. Now, in addressing that situation, um, we both know, don't we, that the sort of uh, female representation in the IT industry sort of hover between 17 and 19% for quite some time now. It showed a little bit of an upturn this year, but not much. Yeah, massive. it's done that before, and we've we've kind of waited. And so I'd be delighted if it keeps going up. Um, but, yeah, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Do you think there's a way we can prioritise some of the things that we do here then? Because obviously there's a lot of suggestions in the book. Are there things that should be top of mind? Maybe it's board representation. Is, is Would that be the sort of key part, maybe? I, well, so getting the board to fully understand, for me, is the first step. If they don't, then everything that's going on beneath that, so the employee mm. resource groups or HR team who are trying to work on diversity, all of that goes by the board because essentially the executive team however that's made up the senior leadership team doesn't get the value of it so so therefore all resources to the employee resource group or the the hr diversity team are limited they are not supported in the work that they do when they do face issues there's nobody to clear the way for them um so yeah get get the top level to fully understand it but, but then, you know, the executives and the middle managers need to follow. And, and many of the, the schemes in the early days that educated management stopped at the executive team, you have to get down to the people who are recruiting and assessing mm. all of the people around you. And you have to get within them an understanding of the issues. So in your part of the book, uh, Gillian, is, is it a lot about experiences that people have had? Are you, are you looking at some of the research that's been done or is it a balance between the two? Um, well, I, I did another part of the book. So I did the business case for diversity, but my second contribution was uh, on unconscious bias. Right. Um, and it's something that fascinates me and, and that I teach on regularly and, and how we're socialised to believe certain things about individuals Hmm. so we're socialized to believe that um maybe we're socialized to believe that women 
belong in the home and not in the workplace. Hopefully that's less so in, in today's world. However, however, all of the ways in which we've been socialized to think about others color our view of whether they fit in the workplace or mm. whether they would make an ideal manager or not. And consequently, that, that will make our decisions one way or another in support of or not in support of the females around us. Interesting. You whetted our appetite substantially there, Gillian. Thank you so much. Now I've got one more question that I like to ask everybody, and this is about role models. So who, who have you taken inspiration from? Uh, maybe, maybe in this, or, or maybe just generally in your IT career. I, I like to hear people's inspirations. I had a fabulous manager in IBM. Uh, he was called Les Rogerson. He was my best manager ever. Um, he was firm but fair, um, but I think he was very, very inclusive in his thinking. He was willing to take a risk and, and you know, great managers make great staff. They, they encourage employees to be the best they can be. And so for me, knowing that you had to be a courageous manager and, and alongside of that, knowing that you needed to facilitate the best from your teams has, has brought me a long way. Yeah, so he was a real inspiration. Um, Steve Shirley was an inspiration mm. um, and uh, it was great to meet her. And then people around me, you know, uh, Rebecca George, who was the last, um, who was the last president of the BCS. Yeah, she's, she and I have been friends for years, but actually, she's she's a great role model. Um, and uh, my mate Christine Alexander Smith, great role model, um, also out of IBM, but but a woman who really battled some issues around unconscious bias and still does, um, and my best friend, Helen. Yeah, all okay. of those people, Lovely. hugely influential. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. I, thank you so much for speaking to us today. That's been a fairly short conversation. We're just trying to whet people's appetites. You've definitely done that. Um, I really hope you go back to the orange chair. Then you and Sue Black can do a sort of um, dual thing together with the interesting coloured hair. You, <laughs> Mm, not sure about the orange hair. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> uh, Julia, can I say thank you so much for speaking to us? You're very welcome.